Well, will you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the letter to the Romans? To Romans chapter 3. And we'll be looking at verses 27 through 31 today. And I'm going to back up and begin our reading in Romans 3, 21. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? Again, I'll be preaching on verses 27 through 31, but we'll begin reading in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder if any of you have ever heard of the Aristotelian triptych. Uh, maybe some of you teachers have. I first learned this technique, the Aristotelian triptych, back in high school from one of my English teachers, although I had no idea back then that it was called the Aristotelian triptych. That title makes it sound really difficult, doesn't it? Uh, I heard it again in seminary. And in seminary, I found it to be particularly useful in communicating thought during sermon writing. Well, you may have guessed from the name, this method or this technique goes all the way back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. And it does, in fact, sound very intimidating, but it's not. Uh, the Aristotelian triptych can be summed up in the following sentence. If you want to communicate clearly to people, you need simply to tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. That's it. That's the whole of the triptych. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. You begin by making clear in shorthand the substance of your message. And then you make it clear where you're going. You tell them 
what you're going to tell them. And then you go there and you actually tell them. You explain and expand on what you just told them you were going to tell them. And then finally, you rehearse or repeat once again. You tell them what you just told them. Now, the reason I'm going over this is not so that you might become better writers or better orders in the new year, although if that's your personal resolution, more power to you, and I trust this will help. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because Paul, in asking the rhetorical questions that he asks in the passage before us, is using a reasoned method of communication not unlike that old Aristotelian triptych. Did Paul know Aristotle? Uh, Perhaps he did. He was well-learned. Having just laid out the gospel, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, Paul now goes on to describe these three profound and powerful implications that stem from the truth of the gospel. And to do this, he asks this series of questions to which he gives brief answers. But what he's really doing is he's telling us in short form here in chapter 3 what he's going to tell us in long form in chapter 4. He's telling us now what he's going to tell us. Does that make sense? He's telling us in short form what he's actually going to tell us in long form. Okay, so what is he telling us that he's going to tell us? What are these gospel implications? The first implication of the gospel is that the gospel banishes boasting. The gospel banishes boasting. Because the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not according to our works, it means that we have nothing to boast about in ourselves. It banishes boasting. He tells us that here in short form, and then he actually goes on to tell us this in long form in chapter 4 and verses 1 through 8. So if you look down at your Bibles and you look at chapter 4 and verse 1, what do you find is the subject? What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham is justified by works, he has something to boast about. See, he's telling us what he's going to tell us before he tells us. The second implication of the gospel is that it means that the one true and living God is the God of everyone. The one true and living God is the God of everyone. That is to say, he's not just the God of the Jews. He is also the God of the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles have the same God because both stand before the one God who justifies through faith. Again, he tells us that here in short form, And he's going to tell us that in long form in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. So now if you look at verse 9 of chapter 4, or is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? He's telling us what he's going to tell us. Are you getting it now? And then the third implication of the gospel is that this gospel reality does not overthrow the law. Because the law and the prophets bore witness to Christ, the law is fulfilled in the gospel. The law is holy and righteous and good. And although the law, excuse me, although the gospel is the end of the law for righteousness, for those who believe, it's not the end of the law as a standard of God's holy will. 
We do not overthrow the law by this faith. On the contrary, we uphold the law. He tells us that here in short form. And then guess what? He tells us it in long form in chapters 4 and following in so many different ways. He tells us what he's going to tell us. And so this must be important if he really wants us to get it down to tell us in advance what he's going to tell us. And so today we're just going to look at this short-form version of Paul's answers. And to do this, we'll follow the structure that he gives us here. In the gospel, God banishes boasting, verses 27 through 28. In the gospel, God demonstrates that he is God of all, verses 29 through 30. And in the gospel, God upholds his law, verse 31. So first, in the gospel... God banishes boasting. You see that in verses 27 through 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So this is the first implication, the first result, we might say, of the gospel. That faith in Christ excludes or banishes all boasting. And we might ask, why does Paul even bring this question up in the first place? Why is this particularly important to Paul? And I think the reason that it's particularly important to Paul, uh, apart from the obvious truth of the matter, is that this was one of the things that Paul himself really struggled with. As you read through the letters of Paul, he often comes back to this idea of boasting. We might remember the way that he writes to the Philippians. And he says, if anyone else thinks that they have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, Paul knew the Jewish community pretty well. And as he surveyed the landscape of his contemporaries, he could say in fleshly terms that he had reason for more confidence than any of them, more reason for boasting than any of them. So much so that according to the righteousness under the law, he was blameless. And it was only when he came to understand the gospel, it was only when he met the risen Christ that his understanding of all his human pedigree, all his efforts, all his self-righteousness began to change. Now, of course, Paul wrestled with a particularly Jewish form of boasting, didn't he? Those were not the sorts of things that Gentiles would boast in. And yet... Gentiles boast, right? Boasting is not just a Jewish problem, is it? Boasting is a human problem. Boasting is your problem, and it's my problem. It's a problem of the sinful human heart. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians when he speaks of those who measure themselves by one another, and they compare themselves with one another. If you measure yourself by someone else and compare yourself with someone else, Paul says, you are without understanding. 
Boasting comes in whenever we lower our standards. If the standard of our comparison is not the absolute holiness and righteousness and perfection of God, but is the person sitting down the pew from us, or sitting across the table from us, if we have lowered our standard, that is a recipe for boasting. Again, think of that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And, you know, we, can, we often will read this in a voice like, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. That I am not extortioners, unjust, an adulterer, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But I wonder if it was a tone that was much more subtle. God, I thank you with sincerity. I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not unjust. I'm not an extortioner. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. We have a very subtle way of turning even our religious doings into a means of boasting. That principle is true for everyone. Anytime we say, well, I'm doing better than so-and-so, at least we're not like them. We prove that that same disease has corrupted our hearts. And this is so subtle. We do it in so many different ways, ways that we, we humbly put ourselves forward. I stumbled across an article this week that actually focused on cultivating the art of this. And I laughed out loud. I literally laughed out loud while I was sitting on my couch because the title was so appropriate to my sermon. Here was the title of the article. Mastering the Subtle Art of the Humble Brag. A Guide to Polished Self-Promotion. The art of the humble brag. Now, maybe you're familiar with that terminology, the humble brag. I don't think I've ever heard it before. And yet, the moment I read it, I knew exactly what it meant. Because I've totally been guilty of it. Boasting is not just a Jewish sin. It's a human sin. It's a Christian sin. And it's a sin that the gospel excludes. It shuts it out. And it's only when Paul really began to understand the gospel that this ever became clear to him. So that in spite of all of his fleshly reasons for confidence, he could then, through the gospel, begin to say, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, now I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And now listen, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
You see, it's when Paul began to understand this way of righteousness, this righteousness that comes through faith in Christ and that depends on Christ, that he understood that it necessarily excludes boasting. It leaves no room for it. Literally in Greek, this word means it shuts it out. And that's what Paul is getting at when he asks, by what kind of law? That is to say, by what kind of law is boasting excluded? Is it excluded by the law of works or by the law of faith? When Paul uses this word law, namos, when he speaks of a law of works and a law of faith, here I think we're better to understand this not as the Mosaic law, but as a principle, a principle of works or a principle of faith. And the question is, which of these two ways, faith or works, excludes boasting? Is boasting excluded by the principle of works, by which I seek to earn God's favor through my own performance and my own obedience? Is that what excludes boasting? Or is boasting excluded by the principle of faith? in which I cast aside all that I am and all that I have done, and I put my faith and my trust in Christ. Obviously, it's the latter, right? It's not by the principle of works, but by the principle of faith, as he says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That is the way that you are counted righteous in God's sight, not because of what you have done or who you are, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Now, I'm sure that I cannot put it any more plainly than John Murray does in his commentary. John Murray, our OPC father in the faith, Murray put it like this. He said, Justification by works always finds its ground in that which the person is and does. But the specific quality of faith is that it puts its trust and commitment in another. It is essentially extrospective. That is to say that it looks away from itself. And in that respect, it is diametrically opposed to works. Faith is self-renouncing. Works are self-congratulatory. Faith is self-renouncing. Works are self-congratulatory. Faith looks to what God does. Works have respect to who I am. That is why the principle of faith necessarily banishes boasting because it doesn't look inside. It doesn't look to me. It doesn't look to what I've done. It looks outside. It looks to Christ. Sinclair Ferguson put it like this, faith is not directed to anything I am or do, it is directed to Jesus and who he is, to the doing and dying, to the rising and reigning of Jesus. It is by faith alone and in Christ alone. That is the only way to be righteous before God, and this way of righteousness totally excludes boasting. And this is true not simply for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, because anyone who comes to God must come through faith in Christ. And that's where Paul goes next. 
This is the next implication of the gospel, that in the gospel, God demonstrates that he is the Lord of all. So that's our second point. In the gospel, God demonstrates that he is God of all. You see it in verses 29 through 31. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, there's both a theological and a practical point here. Uh, The theological point, uh, Paul demonstrates by appealing to the Shema. Do you know the Shema? This is uh, the the Hebrew confession of confessions. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's that great monotheistic confession of Israel that God is one. God alone. And Paul's point is that since there is only one God and that there is only one way to God, because God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, then he must be both the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. If there's only one God and there's only one way to God, then clearly he is God of all. That's the short-form answer. He's going to give the long-form answer. He's going to give a long-form answer in an appeal to Abraham. I was reading in my uh, devotions this week, and I was reading in Isaiah, and it talks about how you should look to the rock from which you were hewn. Look from the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham. Right? The prophets are often calling God's people to look back to Abraham as a model of faith. And so that's what Paul does. He looks to the rock from whom they were quarried, right? And he says, look, when Abraham was justified by faith, was it before he was circumcised or was it after he was circumcised? And the answer, of course, is that it was before he was circumcised. He was accounted righteous before he was circumcised. Abraham was just a pagan idol worshiper from the Chaldeans. That's who he was. He was a pagan. He was a Gentile, as it were. And you see, if Abraham, being uncircumcised, was justified by faith and then given the sign of circumcision, then truly circumcision does not matter when it comes to justification. It is not circumcision, but faith that matters. That's the theological point that he's making, is that God is God of all. Jews and Gentiles share the same God, and this one God justifies all by faith alone in Christ alone. The practical point of that, of course, is that if God is God of all, then all who are believers in Christ Jesus belong to his people which means that there is no place for ethnic discrimination in the church at all. And this has occurred in various ways throughout the ages, right? In the New Testament times, the ethnic discrimination was between Jews and Gentiles. You can remember the way that Paul confronts Peter in the book of Galatians. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what your gender is, what the color of your skin is, what your social status is. If you are in Christ through faith, you are a new creation. You are a member of the family of God. 
In fact, you are Abraham's seed, according to faith. Paul says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so even our earthly pedigree is no cause for boasting. Paul says in Galatians 6, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What matters is if you are a new creation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now that might raise a question among some of Paul's fellow countrymen. Well, if that's the case, Paul, wasn't there anything special about Israel? Wasn't there anything special about God's giving of the law? And are you not simply overthrowing the law by this faith? And if the law is overthrown, then what prevents us from living any way we want? And it's that question that brings us to our final point, the final implication of the gospel, this, this final question that Paul anticipates. And that is that the gospel, in the gospel, God upholds his law. So look at verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What is Paul saying here? He is basically saying that though we are not saved on the basis of the law, our coming to faith in Christ does not make us lawbreakers. On the contrary, it makes us law upholders. And that for two reasons. First, because the righteousness through faith, though it's manifested apart from the law, the law and the prophets have always borne witness to it. The law and the prophets have always spoken of Christ and of this way of righteousness through faith in Christ. That's why he can appeal to David and appeal to Abraham as believers resting in that promised seed. And Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So in that sense, the law is not overthrown, but it is upheld because the law and the prophets have always looked to Christ and now in the coming of Christ are not abolished, but they are truly fulfilled. But there's another sense in which this is true, which Paul is going to fill out over the course of this letter. You see, the law sets a standard of righteousness, but the law provides no power to fulfill that standard of righteousness. But what Paul will later argue is that when we come to faith in Christ, we receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit. And marvelously, by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, the standard of righteousness that is found in the law actually begins to be worked out in us. It actually begins to be fulfilled in us. Uh, think of the way that Paul writes in Romans 8, right after he says that there is therefore now no condemnation, right? For those who are in Christ Jesus, he says that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is amazing. That what the law had no power to give, Christ, through his redemption and by the power of his Holy Spirit, gives. Far from overthrowing the law, it's only in and through the gospel that we have the power to obey the law, to uphold the law, to admit that the law is holy and righteous and good, and to begin to desire to truly want to please God through it. And yet even then, that fulfilling of the law is but the fruit of the gospel, and it's not the other way around. Our fulfilling of the law is the fruit that grows out of the root of the gospel. Even then, we have nothing to boast about because it's all of God. If God is pleased to work his law out in our lives, it is all of him. It is all of grace. Well, that's it. Paul has told us what he's going to tell us. But over the course of the next several chapters, he's going to tell us these things in greater detail as he unfolds these wonderful gospel implications in splendid detail. For today, it's enough for us to understand the basic outline of where he's going. It's enough for for us to understand that the gospel truly banishes all boasting. Because we have faith in Christ, we have nothing to boast in except Christ himself. That in the gospel, God demonstrates that he is the God of all, Jew and Gentile, because there is only one God, and this one God justifies the circumcised and the uncircumcised through faith. And in the gospel, not only is boasting excluded, not only does God show us that he is the Lord of all, but he also demonstrates that the law is upheld. You see what I've just done? I've told you what I was going to tell you. Then I told you. And then I told you what I told you. And I hope that in doing so, we might be able to sing the words that we're about to sing in this hymn. These marvelous words, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. What do we have that we have not received? Nothing. It's all of Christ. And if it's all of Christ, then we have nothing to boast save in Christ and in Christ alone. And so let's pray, and then we'll sing and boast in Christ together. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word, which does, in fact, cut us down, and it shows us uh, and reveals the pride of our own hearts. But Lord, we thank you for Jesus and for the perfections of his righteousness. When we compare ourselves to him, Lord, we see how far short we fall. But Lord, we also see uh, a Savior who has done all that uh, we have failed to do. We see him offering that perfect sacrifice. We see him offering all of the perfect obedience to you. And we find that you accept it as pleasing. And in accepting him, you accept us as pleasing. And so we pray, Lord, that we would not boast in anything, 
uh, except in the cross of Christ alone, uh, that we would remember that there's no place for discrimination in your church because there is only one God who is Lord of all, and that you continue to uphold your law and even, by your Holy Spirit, begin to work it in us. And so we thank you and praise you and say it in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis um, once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. I find that to be a helpful way of thinking about humility. Jesus did not think less of himself. He was glorious. He knew the perfections of his righteousness. He knew that he had offered perfect obedience to his Father. And he knew that it was his delight to do it. He did not think less of himself. But when it came to the cross, he thought of himself less. He thought of his own life less than our lives. He thought of his own need less than our need. And he went to the cross. That's what Philippians tells us, right? That he went to the cross for us in humility, taking the form of a servant. And that we are to have this same mind, which was in Christ Jesus, who esteemed the interests of others even above his own. As we come to the Lord's table then today, the Lord's table is a place where we see the humility of Christ and where Christ calls us to humility. And this is the place where we can truly boast as we boast in our Savior and in all that he has done. We can say, look at the bread and the wine. That's my king and that's my savior. He's the one in whom I stand or fall. He is my boast. And so today as we come to this table, let's come with hearts humbled before God, but boasting joyfully in the work of our savior. Now this meal, of course, belongs to those who are truly boasting in Christ, but it does not belong to any who continue to boast in themselves. It does not belong to any who continue to stand in their own righteousness, their own filthy rags of righteousness, as it were. And so if you have come to Christ and you're trusting in him and you're boasting in him and you love him and you are walking in faith and in repentance, then you are welcome to come to this table and to join us and to be assured of your faith. But if those things are not true of you, if you do not belong to Christ, if you're not a a baptized, professing member of the Church of Jesus Christ, then this meal does not yet belong to you. And yet, even though you might let these elements pass today, I would call upon you not to let Christ pass. Christ promises that he will save anyone who calls upon his name in truth. And so I would encourage you to do that today. And even as we come to this table, let us call upon the name of the Lord as we rest in him. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements now and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, as we approach your table, we approach it humbly. Because we know that we have nothing in which we might boast in ourselves. We don't deserve to come to this table. There is nothing we have done to merit it. We come to this table as a gift of your grace. We come to receive from you. Lord, you who did not think less of yourself, but thought 
of yourself so much less in order that we might be redeemed. And so we pray now that you would take these ordinary elements and you would set them apart for this holy use, that we, in receiving them in faith, might receive Christ and all of his benefits to our salvation and growth in grace. We ask it in Jesus' name.